Let's continue in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, especially after disruptions in this past year and not being able to have this kind of service together last year, Lord, I pray that we would cherish it a bit more. But far more important, God, than us cherishing a service is cherishing you yourself. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open spiritual eyes and ears as we look into your word, mine included. Will you soften our hearts and lead us closer to you, Jesus? We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the one who makes any of our days good, the only one who can bring goodness to all of our days. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26, starting in verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman approached him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. She poured it on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw it, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This might have been sold for a great deal and given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this perfume on my body, she has prepared me for burial. Truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So tonight you came here because it's Good Friday, expecting to hear about Jesus' death and sacrifice on the cross, which you will. If I didn't talk about that, it'd be a little weird. I sat down to prep a message this week, also considering the death and sacrifice that Jesus had on the cross, which I will give. But I was wanted specifically this year to focus in for the bit of time I have on the humiliation that Jesus goes through. Because not only did Jesus humble himself from being at the right hand of God the Father and step down into humanity to take on our form, but he was subject to our humiliation that we put on him. And I was gonna share a funny anecdote or story about when I was a kid and I got embarrassed. See, that's a little preaching trick. You don't have to tell the story if you just say it was funny. People are like, oh yeah, that's good. Um, but I was gonna share a funny story about a time I was embarrassed as a kid. And I was gonna ask you to think of one so you could lock it in your head and we could kind of just get a shred. I mean, obviously it'd be nothing close to the humiliation that Jesus experienced that Thursday and Friday. But just to get a little bit in our heads of, of, of the humiliation of, of that, I, I was thinking, okay, why don't we talk about being embarrassed? But then I 
opened up to Matthew 26 and read those verses, I was actually just gonna review the timeline of what happens leading up to the cross. And when I got to that little story, I didn't care about my story. Because when I got to that little story, I saw that right in this moment, this woman pouring out perfume upon Jesus, this woman who we know from the Gospel of John is Mary, sister of Martha and Lazarus. Once I got to her story and saw her pulling out the alabaster jar and getting this, this perfume that, that, that costs like potentially a year's worth of an average man's wages and, and pouring it out upon Jesus, I saw that she understood what Good Friday and Easter is about. There's a simple and deep and profound, beautiful little truth that she understood and that we're not holding her up in this message, but we can look at it and see this Mary, this woman understood the most important thing about this week. The disciples didn't, at least not in that moment. But she does. She knows what's going on, at least to some degree. She probably doesn't realize what all's happening. She doesn't realize the burial significance that Jesus is talking about. But in that moment, she knows who is in front of her, to some degree, why he might be in front of her, and how important that moment is. And because of that, we find in her story all that we need to know about this week. But before we talk about what that actually was, we'll come back to her. So I wanna talk about the humiliation that Jesus was subject to. And I will say that it is my hope, it's my prayer that for all of us in this room and anyone watching online, that when we walk out of here tonight, we've learned what she did that we'll, in a better way, know what Mary knew. Philippians chapter two, we see Paul talking about the humility, the humility that we need to have as Christians for the sake of our unity, which we're not talking about tonight, but he points to Jesus and says, look at Jesus where we find the perfect picture of humility, and then you'll see how we need to act. Philippians two, starting in verse five. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. So Jesus exists in a way that blows our minds at the very beginning of time, before time existed with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all together. Perfectly in harmony together, needing no one else, to satisfy, no one to add anything to them, and only create humanity out of their own goodness. But God, together, Jesus leaves that voluntarily, being at the right hand of God to step into humanity for our sake. Instead, he emptied himself, verse seven, by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Deuteronomy 21, 23 tells us in part, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. So not only if you were a Jewish man knowing that Deuteronomy verse as Jesus surely did, 
you knew that to die on a cross is a shameful death. To die as the way the Romans have perfected it, even worse. So not only does Jesus step down into humanity, he specifically steps into one of the worst possible ways to die in a life of servitude, of washing feet, of dealing with lepers, of addressing the woman who's been married five times in a way that she never expected. So we look at a little bit of the week that we remember as Holy Week. And it starts with Jesus in the garden. His, here his anguish begins right before the humiliation. He's praying to God. Imagine Jesus on his knees crying out to God, sweating blood, literally, which we know is an, it's a rare but an actual possible medical condition to sweat blood. Sweating blood because he has so much anguish, crying out to God, saying, God, this is going to be horrible. God, this is going to be brutal. But I'll do it. Saying, if there's no other way, God, I will do this. I will take that death. And listen, not just the incredible physical pain that we can't imagine, but constant shame and humiliation that people tried to throw upon him. So he leaves there and... and probably familiar with the story, after he's sweating the blood, crying out to God, he knows the answer is that this is the way. So he goes forward. Just after this, he gets arrested. He has the humiliation of Judas, one of his own disciples, betraying him. He gets taken away to the Sanhedrin. And finally, I mean, this is, you know, we often talk about, we focus a lot on Pontius Pilate and, and the Romans and, and what they did. But first he goes in front of his own people. If anyone should understand what's going on, it's them. He's not to the Romans yet. This isn't Babylon. This isn't some Old Testament pagan country. These are what's left of Israel. These are the leaders of Israel. This is the leaders of the promised land. He goes before them for his charges, only to be humiliated more. They start asking him things like, are you really God's son? There's no way you could be this. Did you say this? He says, he basically says, yeah, I did. What you said is correct. He doesn't deny it. And listen, you've been a Jewish person. If you're hearing this, you've been waiting hundreds. Your, your people have been waiting thousands of years for the Messiah to finally come. And even though he's verified it with all his miracles and everything, they start freaking out, tearing clothes. These are, these are the religious leaders ripping their clothes apart, probably gritting their teeth saying, how dare you? to the point they go over to Jesus screaming in his face. I'm building that as part of the picture, but we know at least that they're spitting on him, hitting him. Something that jumped out at me and maybe that I didn't quite notice before. Actually, we have Matthew 26, verse 67. Then they spat in his face and beat him. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah. Who was it that hit you? Think about how snide, to say the very least, that comment is. That's one of those things we can probably glance over because there's so much going on on the way to the cross, but the amount of venom in that. To picture Jesus being spat on, being hit, people are yelling, screaming in his face, I'd presume, tearing their clothes, saying, how dare you say you're God? Imagine a guy comes up, whacks him across the back of the head and says, Jesus, why don't you tell me who did it? I mean, how many people would have had to be around you screaming in your face for them to say that? It wasn't just one guy. Then it'd be obvious. 
but to scream in his face, come on, God, can't you tell me who hit you? Even to act out a phrase makes me sick. Remember, these are, these are the people who should understand. These are the people who have been waiting, waiting for the Messiah, reading the scriptures, just like Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures for life, but you don't find it in me. Not only is he being humiliated by these leaders, but he has the denial of his friends. Most of the disciples are gone. We don't know where they are, but we know that they've grown to believe in Jesus. They're on the boat with him or earlier on with their time in his ministry. There's the little story where they're on the boat and Jesus is taking a nap and a bad storm comes in. They wake up Jesus and they're like, I don't know, he's God, right? He'll be able to do something. And they wake him up and just with words, he calms wind and, and they, they freak out even more. Like, who is this man that he can stop wind and waves? So they believe in him so much, but you know, they run, they disperse, most of them. We don't know, but we do know about Peter, of course. And Peter, and Peter's the, the loud, passionate one. He's the, he's the one who, you know, he says, I know you're the son of God. He's the one who, when they come to arrest him, whips out a sword and lunges at a guy and ends up lobbing an ear off. And just a little bit later, He's out in the courtyard while Jesus is being mocked and having this kangaroo court around him and the Sanhedrin's yelling at him as these leaders bring the charges against him. Peter's just out in the courtyard a bit, waiting until someone comes up and says, hey, the guy in there, you know him, right? No, no. Of course, denying him three times. No, no, I don't know him. Stop bringing it up. I don't know him. Please just stop it. I, I don't know that guy. So the humiliation occurs on multiple levels. And then we get to the violent parts. We get to the flogging. It's something like this. And you probably have heard, I mean, we all know exactly what it was like, but maybe ropes or strips of leather with potentially pieces of bone or rock or metal shards, pottery shards potentially for the Roman soldiers to beat him with. Isaiah prophesied this, Isaiah 53 says, by his stripes were healed. Well, not only did they take stripes, they probably took chunks. It's designed that as you whip with that, you're not just laying stripes, you're probably ripping out bits. And not only is the physical pain and, and, and the flogging is more than Jesus obviously could ever deserve being the sinless man he was. But beyond that, then the soldiers come and they say, you're a king, right? Purple's the color of royalty throughout history. We'll treat you. We'll show you everyone's you're the king. They put the purple robe around him. And then he gets the crown of thorns. So the Bible tells us they made the crown of thorns, but we don't know how. Some people believe they might have literally just went over to a bush chop off a branch, maybe twist it a little bit, or maybe not even, just kind of bend it and shove it down on. So everywhere he, t and, and we're told that they spit on him too, and they're hitting him in the head, and it, it's just, it continues. And then we get to the cross. And listen, Jesus was becoming famous in this area, 
And I know culturally today when there's famous people we don't like, we like to mock. So imagine the scene around Jesus. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39, gives us a picture so we don't have to imagine. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him and said, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe in him. We will believe in him. This is what we do with God. Not just them, I think we do it. Times when we need more. Oh God, sometimes if you ever ask God for, for more clarification on who he is and his goodness and his love. But this is even worse because it, it, he's been giving miracles. People know about the miracles. He's raising people from the dead. He's, he's walking on water. Some of these things were just for the disciples. Some of these were very public. And yet they're like, all right, I just need one more miracle. In a mocking tone saying, if you can just come down off that cross, I'll, I'll accept it. Think of the venom in these words. Verse 43, he trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he takes pleasure in him, for he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him taunted him. So you have people on crosses taunting him, potentially saying, yeah, can't you get down from there? Imagine the scene of people jeering, saying that guy said he was God. People walking by laughing. We remember the shouts of crucify all the time, but do we remember the taunting and the laughter? So then we get to what happens medically on the cross. And, and I, in college, I, I read a paper, I'm by no means a doctor, but, uh, or, or understand all the medical stuff with it, but I, I did some research and I refreshed myself this week and I thought maybe I, I would read some of the the kind of medical descriptions of the theories of what could be happening, but honestly, it's just it's too much. And some of this stuff is theoretical. We don't know exactly what all was happening in his body on the cross. I mean, but I put together some ideas to give us the picture. And some of this is kind of medical speculation, well-researched and, and whatnot from doctors, and, but it's just a picture but based on what the Bible gives us. So we know that he was on the cross from the Bible for at least three hours. Potentially, a lot of people believe three to six. From Roman history, as far as I can tell, it was common for people to be on the cross for maybe a day or more. And if your family didn't come get you, which the Roman judge would give permission for, they might leave you for the animals. Jesus was so badly beaten, he only lasts probably three to six hours. And I say only, not imagining the pain. And we can't assume that, that look, it's not this sanitary cross we have in our church building, well sanded, lacquered, finished well. This is rough. Some people say these might have been reused from, from a previous crucifixion. We don't know, but this isn't that kind of cross. 
This is the raw, open sores and, and flesh cut out of your back rubbing up against this wood. His hands are pierced, which with translations, we don't know for sure if it was in the palm or maybe right here in the wrist, but we believe either way it would have went through the median nerve, causing pain to ripple throughout the arms. Nails down through the feet, through nerves as well, causing unimaginable pain. He's losing blood, he's dehydrating, he speaks of his thirst. His bloody body could be attracting insects, birds of prey that he can't swat away. This is what crucifixion was. It's believed that even though we don't have it on our cross here, there's probably a small little block that they hoped you could either kind of sit on or put your feet on for a little bit of rest that would actually prolong your life to make the torture last longer. Doctors talk about how to be contorted in that way, potentially with legs bent and arms pinned, every breath. You're trying to rise up, but you're, Arms are nailed in and, and the weight on certain parts of your body, each exhale hurts. Let alone the fact that his body rubs up against the cross. Muscles cramping, oxygen getting lower, potentially going into a type of shock. Fluids potentially building up in the lungs, making it even harder to breathe. And the reason I don't go into some of the detail of what I've read this week is the same reason you don't watch The Passion of the Christ all the time. Because we don't want to see the violence of the cross. Me included, it's stomach churning, it's sickening. There, there's points where I'm refreshing myself on some of this medical research this week and, and, and I got to stop the video, I got to stop the podcast, I, I can't listen to it anymore. But then I realized that there's something worse about looking at the cross. Is it violent? Yes. Is it a horrific thing to have any person go through, let alone God who deserved none of this? Yes. But what I think, if we're honest with ourselves, in our heart of hearts, what makes us even more sick about the cross, which it's already sickening enough, but what makes us even more sick about seeing and thinking and watching a movie and, and hearing about what it was like for Jesus on the cross is the depth of the sin that put him there. Because in this rough, not this one, but in the rough cross, roughly cut out of wood is the perfectly polished mirror. One that, a mirror that no man could ever make or manufacture, but without any deceit or distortion, this is a mirror that perfectly holds itself up to us to show us how deep sin runs in broken humanity without the work of God. If you think back to when you came to know Jesus, if you already have, You probably have a hard time dwelling or thinking about your own sin that put him on that cross. 
And we read throughout the Bible and especially in the, in the Old Testament when the prophets are talking about the cost of sin and, 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 and the brokenness it causes and the ugliness of it and, and all the evil of it. We don't want that mirror in front of us. But if we don't have moments of realization, if you never had an original moment of realization of your sin, then you wouldn't ask for forgiveness. In a few minutes, we're gonna go into a time of communion, which is a time of looking into that mirror, but then passing into celebration. Just as Jesus passes from Good Friday to the celebration of resurrection that we need, so we get to as well. So lastly, we look again at Mary. Mary's pouring the perfume out on Jesus. Again, he's talking about this is an anointment for my burial because people would use perfumes to get the bodies ready since they weren't embalming them then. I don't know that she knows the significance of all that, but what she understands is that Jesus, God himself, is in this room with me. And I don't care the cost of this stuff. I'm gonna celebrate the God who's with me. The I am is in this room with me and I'm gonna celebrate it. And the disciples are like, don't you understand how much this could cost? They're doing cost-effective analysis, you know, doing spreadsheets and whatnot. And she's saying, listen, God is with us in this room. We'll figure out the other details later. God will provide, we'll take care of the poor. He's gonna be gone, you know. But right now, God is in this room and needs to be celebrated. And she is in awe of him. And the question for us tonight is, are we just happy? Do we just call this Good Friday because of the forgiveness of our sins? Or are we even far more excited about the fact that a God sacrificed himself because he wanted to be with you, in a room with you, and in an eternity with you? Look, the forgiveness of sins should make us excited. We probably don't appreciate it enough, especially as the years go by. But what should be so much more exciting is I'm gonna break it, I'm gonna get the alabaster jar, I'm gonna smash it, I'm gonna dump the perfume, I'm gonna celebrate because God himself has showed up and is with me. That's what we celebrate in communion. If you didn't grab a communion cup, you'll have a chance to do so here in a minute, so don't worry about that. But in order to celebrate the God who is with us, we go to communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is where we get to the mirror in front of us, the examination. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. I believe communion is something for believers to partake in. If you've already given yourself to Jesus. And another thing I believe is that we need to take seriously I don't just believe it's what Paul said. It's what God said in his word. We need to take seriously this moment. I don't, and I don't think that means that it's so serious that you never do it because it's a way that we receive God's grace. But Paul was deeply concerned with people probably just showing up like, oh, bread, no, wine. So before we pass into the celebration of God with us, we look at ourselves but if you just only look at yourselves and only look at your sin, you'll start thinking you can never drink it. So then we look at the cross. So for me, it's, it's often sitting there thinking about my sin and, and, and how I need to love God more and how I need to serve and love more. But then I have to remind myself that communion is for the needy people. Jesus said, I didn't come for the people that are all together. I didn't come for perfect people. I didn't come for the people who don't need a doctor. I came for those who know they need a doctor, the ones that are sick and needy. So we do examine ourselves. We do look at sin. We do recognize the body, as Paul said, which I believe we've been doing for this whole message, meaning you have to take a moment to be serious and remember what it costs Jesus on the cross. So you look at your sin, you look at the cross, you remember the gift Jesus gave you, and then you partake. Don't pass that moment up. Paul says, some of you got ill and some of you fallen asleep, which means died. So this is for a believer. And it requires a moment of thanking God for the gift he gave us on Good Friday. If I could have the band come up, what we're going to do is I want you to have that time. So they're going to play uh, quietly for just a couple minutes for you to pray. Um, I'm going to kind of open up this time in prayer and then, and then we're going to have a couple quiet minutes where they just kind of play softly and that's just space for you to do what you need to do. Examine yourself, look to the cross, thank Jesus in gratitude and then, and then celebrate that what we are eating represents the body and the blood and represents what, the body that was broken for you and the blood that was poured out for you. So I'm going to pray. We're going to take a couple of minutes for you to pray. And then either during that time or even during the next song uh, that they, they start in a couple of minutes, you can go up and, and get a cup or if you already have one, but you can just kind of take it on your own during this time or during the, this first song that they're going to play. That way you can have a couple of minutes to, to pray and, 
And again, remember, when we pass out of that, we turn to celebration. Because it wasn't just about forgiving sins, but it was about being united to people. That's why Jesus died, to be with his people. So let's pray. And then we'll all go into that time of examining our hearts.